Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. As a quick note to begin for all the yogis and meditators who are practicing social distancing, and I hope you all are, and you're not able to attend your local yoga studios, Commune has launched a virtual yoga and meditation studio where you can practice with great teachers online and interact digitally with like-minded folks from across the globe. It's completely free at onecommune.com slash studio. Okay, thanks for all the feedback uh, you sent connected to the special episode on coronavirus over the last weekend. I hope that it provided some relief from anxiety and fear you may be experiencing. And personally, I learned that I supposedly have a very calming and reassuring voice that uh, quite a few people use as a replacement for Ambien. But I, I suppose helping people sleep is not a bad skill to have right now. Um, I'm a, I will apologize in advance for droning on endlessly about the coronavirus here on the podcast and on social media. I've had a number of other kinds of podcasts interviewed scheduled, but I've canceled them for a number of reasons, pretty much because this is all I can think about. And the episode that was previously scheduled for this week was about an experiment in cooperative living, which I don't think is particularly appropriate for the moment. But today, I am fortunate to have my partner in social isolation sitting exactly six feet away from me. It's uh, very sexy. Yeah, Corona has not done a tremendous amount for anyone's sex life, that's for sure. And of course, she's already added some levity and crassness to this particular episode. So hello, Skylar. Hello, darling. So, um, 19 years ago, when you opened Kula Yoga Project, that was in response to the last epic crisis, 9-11. And ironically, this global crisis had you close them instead of open them. Um, so tell me a little bit about what's going on kind of in your and our life, and just set that scene for everyone. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a, an, an irony that has not been lost on, on any of us in the Kula community. So to just outline it very briefly, um, in 2001, of course, there was 9-11, and um, you had your business, your uh, music label, down in um, lower Manhattan, just blocks from the World Trade Center, and um, I was a film editor, and like everybody else in that aftermath, um, was looking for things to do to help, and so out of the literal ashes of of the um, World Trade Center area, we built my little humble yoga studio that really became a nexus for community building, and 
it was, you know, it was quickly a um, community success, if never much of a business success, but it was quickly the hub for people to come together and, and um, find solace through human contact. And we've been chugging along for the last 18, 19 years. In the interim, Wanderlust was, was born out of the same building. Um, you and Sean created this epic new thing called a wellness festival, also bringing people together in IRL. And we birthed three kids and ex extended our personal tribe. And now here we are um, <laughs> and the next, you know, big cataclysm, which has been um, compared to 9-11 by, by all kinds of people. And it is so ironic to feel how uh, diametrically opposed the response to this one is and, and necessarily has to be. And here we are shuttering, I'm shuttering Kula, we're shuttering Wanderlust Hollywood in, in Los Angeles. The festival season has been canceled. And um, we're, well, we still have our kids <laughs> closer mm. than ever. Um, that part of it is, is quite sweet, actually. The, the coming, the forcing our children to be with us who really mostly do everything they can to avoid us and be with their friends. Um, this is, in a, in a weird way, the most sadomasochistic thing a, a parent can do. But, um, but from, a, from a business perspective and a community perspective, it's, it's been very, very strange. And um, everyone's seeing the, you know, the explosion of virtual community. And there, there, is a, there is so much opportunity and real richness there. And it's interesting to think about how different um, it is for us in small and global communities because we have this technology to continue to bring us together. And it is really meaningful. And people are finding real, true solace and comfort through that in, while in a parallel universe, there's all kinds of viral misinformation. So the, the technology that we have at our fingertips is, is both our um, medicine and our poison. But um, it's just, it's been, it's been quite a, it's quite a ride. Yeah. I mean, crisis or inflection points tend to um, give people an appreciation for the things that they have. And, you know, I remember vividly in those months after 9-11, um, you know, strangers on the subway platform or on the sidewalks high-fiving each other and, and hugging each other sort of spontaneously, this idea that out of collective grief, strangers could recognize each other's common humanity. Um, and, uh, and ironically now, the best thing that we can do for each other is not be with each other. And, and that, I think, is, is hard um, for a lot of people, but at the same time, you know, I see and sense the seeds of something similar, um, a sentiment that is similar, that we need to reprioritize around the things that make life truly worthwhile. And just, you know, in our own little humble, you know, experience, and while we have been impacted, uh, we're now camped and hunkered down at our retreat center uh, in Topanga, which is lovely and fortunate 
beyond any comparison. Um, but the reason why we're here is that every retreat for the next three months has been canceled. Um, so, but just in the past, you know, few days, we've, I think, enjoyed experiences with our children making kooky SpongeBob cakes and, and art projects and sitting in front of the fire, you know, reading and having moments of, um, of sort of deep appreciation for this incredible miracle of life and um, that we don't generally um, enjoy or get to have. And of course, then we scurry back to, to CNN.com and, and, and worry about the financial reality. And, you know, we're, we're in a very um, strange bubble right now um, just because we have not seen the pandemic itself play out yet. We are kind of on the 10 yard line of that process. And so while there is a tremendous fear and anxiety that's mostly based in the future, and there is kind of a sort of little sense of, I don't know, relief right now that some people are, are, are having kind of buried underneath all of the anxiety around being able to take a little time um, and do those things, cook, read a book, take a nap. Um, but that over the next couple of weeks, just given the math and the th theories around exponential growth, um, I think we're going to see and have to endure a new kind of reality that, that may be very difficult. Um, and uh, on some level, I think we're all kind of preparing for that. I mean, to give a sense of the fluidity of the situation, just since the last podcast on Sunday, you know, restaurants, bars, schools, gyms have all closed. San Francisco, I think 8 million people in California are on basically full lockdown. And uh, day over day, um, just in the United States, COVID-19 cases are increasing over about 30 to 40% per day. Um, and the total number is doubling every two days. So to give a sense of just the global numbers as of Yesterday, last night, March 17th, worldwide infections are at about 200,000 and, and deaths are um, at about 8,000. So right now, we're in this little bubble, given that most people have not contracted the disease. And kind of under the fear and anxiety and the social distancing, there's sort of this odd sense of relief where we have the permission not to kind of sit in endless traffic and take endless meetings and go to that job that we don't love and engage in small talk. Instead, you know, we're shifting some of our priorities and our behaviors to kind of connect with our families and read a book and appreciate the things that make life worthwhile. the underpinnings of life that all of us really crave and we're so 
distracted from. I mean, the modern life has for almost all of us become so busy and so stacked with um, work, really, and ambition uh, that we, it's, it's very difficult to unravel to the core of really what makes most human beings happy, which is human connection. And, and really a degree of simplicity. And it's, it's really been intense for me to look at that, at this moment because of my own um, internal thoughts about climate catastrophe. And you know very well that I've, I'm a bit of a climate catastrophist and have been for years and have a certain amount of um, climate depression and anxiety. And one of the things that I've always thought about regarding climate change and the future of humanity is that there will come a time when things will get so bad and whether it's in the next, you know, 10 years or 50 years that we are going to have to radically shift our patterns of behavior. And our lives will, by necessity, become simpler and more local. And it's always been my feeling or my, my suspicion that as, as difficult as that will be, and certainly there will be horrible suffering in there, that there will be, I believe, a, a relief and that most of us are on a hamster wheel, and I 100% include you and me in this body of people. We're on a hamster wheel of productivity and ambition and are what we think is what we think we want isn't necessarily even what we want. The plans we have as a family to, oh, we hope we're going to go to Europe and the stress of trying to make that trip. Well, those, that's just done. And there's, <clears throat> I know you and I both share a certain amount of relief that we're now not having to plan and execute that trip. And so I, I do think that, that I have always felt like that's coming, but that that shift really can only come for masses of people when it happens to us all together because our sense of ourselves and our our desires for ourselves as you know as successful and productive people in the world is tied to what everyone else is doing unless you're really like an iconoclast and who's living off the earth like my parents who've always been living this way but otherwise we're all we're all in this rat race together and so unless we reorient collectively it's very difficult to reorient yourself personally. And I've always, I never imagined in my wildest dreams that this would come in this context. I always pinned it to a climate change event and that it would happen in, a, in, in that way and that it was far out in the future. Well, here we are reorienting like this in, in a way that yes, is dramatic. And yes, there is suffering. There are people dying and it is dire, but it's actually not as as dire and dramatic as it could be when we're looking at, you know, a whole cascade of fires and floods and tornadoes and the drama of what climate change would look like. And there's a part of me that feels haltingly optimistic that we as a global community can look at this as an opportunity to rewire ourselves. And obviously that's going to take massive systemic change and look, you know, reorienting the way we relate to capitalism and to the structures of government. I mean, there's huge systemic change that would also have to happen. But that that only really begins when we as 
every atomized individual reorient the way we're going to we're going to live day to day the way we're going to interact with each other and envision ourselves as citizens and i guess i'm i'm not an optimist but i'm cop i'm cautiously optimistic that there is um a, a the real seed for for you know fruit in this moment yeah i mean th there are many dimensions and to those thoughts and i share them i mean we we did have a new global story that emerged in the aftermath of world war ii mm -hmm. um of course 70 million people died in world war ii um to give you an extent uh, a sense of the of the extent of the suffering um but or the I, great depression and what that led to in the you know in the great new deal i mean th those opportunities came out of extremis yeah i mean i would say world war ii just from a pure fatality perspective e even more mm -hmm. extreme and you know out of that emerged this new story this imagined order of russia and the united states as the primary superpowers in the world the military industrial complex notions of sort of you know individual materialism that then pushed us forward you know 80 years that have led to kind of what our human reality is now um you know you may even say that the birth of liberal democracy and its vision for a sort of multicultural globalism took its roots at at that time and i think that that's apt because we may at this juncture need to re-examine um globalism in in light of um you know the aftermath of of whatever this this epidemic or pandemic um may be and just to give um you know a sense of the math and and also just to um, underscore the importance of social distancing at this juncture. And I know it's out there, but I'm not sure people have completely internalized why it's important. And it's really just a pure math equation um, based around kind of exponential growth. And, and there's a very succinct interview in the New York Times with a infectious disease epidemiologist named Britta Jewell that um, does a very good job at elucidating this. But essentially, if you think of exponential growth in a, um, uh, with an example that we can all sort of get our heads around, like breeding rabbits, for example, um, if you start with two rabbits, and this is really paraphrasing Britta Jewell, uh, and the number doubles every week. After 10 weeks, you know, you've got a thousand rabbits. And that seems like a reasonable number. But if you wait another 10 weeks, you have a million rabbits. And it is not particularly instinctive or intuitive to grasp how quickly these numbers can go up which is why I, I think that there is some a little bit of complacency left because we just have seen 
as of today, March 18th, very few fatalities in the United States. Um, but if you really play this out, it's all about the reproduction rate of the pathogen, of the disease. So let's say that the reproduction rate is two. So essentially for every infected person, that person infects two more people. So what that essentially means is like if there was a fire that was burning through the forest, it would burn its way through half the forest. Um, and by extension, that means 50% of the people in the world and in the United States by, by uh, extension are going to contract the virus. Now, there's some people that are more susceptible. You know, children don't seem susceptible as much. Um, the actual median age globally is 30, um, which is, um, it's actually, uh, gotten a bit older over the last 10 or 15 years, but still that's pretty young. And, you know, as we've learned, it's mostly immune compromised people that, um, that die from COVID-19. But even if you play this out, you know, there's 8 billion people more or less. This is, you know, back in the napkin math, but there's 8 billion people on the globe. And if 50% of the people contract it, that's 4 billion people. And let's use um, the fatality rates coming out of John Hop Johns Hopkins, which is a very, very reputable science-based source at 0.6% you know, essentially that would be 24 million people perishing globally. And, you know, that is a significant number and the excruciating pain and distress that that will cause is real. But let's just take, if we accept that math, and we don't know for sure, but if we do accept that math, there will still be 8 billion people, more or less, minus 24 million on the planet having to write the new story of humanity. And, you know, we have seen one of the most remarkable things that we've seen just even in the last seven days is how quickly behavior can Adapts. change globally. I mean, sea levels have been rising for 40 years, school shootings, income inequality, criminal justice issues, racism. I mean, you can just go on and on and on with the, uh, with all of the acute issues and salient issues that are impacting our society, but government has generally obfuscated and, the human condition has remained the same and sort of just time marches on. But this is different this time. And it, it's almost like the meme of it, it's actually more of a replicate, uh, the cultural replication is actually almost stronger than the viral replication of it. Yeah. Um, where it is impacting the way people are living their lives on a global scale. And this is having all sorts of ramifications and implications, even in the short term. And I know that you, Skylar, brought 
um, this, in, you know, in the New York Times, there is a, there is a section that's focused on the environmental impacts of COVID-19 and how essentially uh, the skies have been, you know, clearing over parts of the country. I think today it's the clearest day in LA with the least amount of particulates in 40 years or yeah. something like that. It's amazing. And there's all of these NASA images of all parts of the world and how sparklingly clear they are. And the canals of Venice are like running, you know, you could actually see the bottom of the canals for the first time ever. Hmm. Of course, that's because nobody's in them. But yeah. No, I mean, I've seen these, you know, somewhat ridiculous memes like, were the virus. Right. Human beings are the virus and Corona is is the vaccine or, you know, from my more, you know, from my friends that listen to the earth, um, you know, that uh, environmentalism, like, has not had a good marketing agency um, until now. Right. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. How do we get climate change to hire COVID's press agents? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's, uh, there was this one particular thing that caught my attention from a researcher at Stanford University named Marshall Burke, who calculated that the improvements in air quality recorded in China may have saved the lives of 4,000 children under five years old and 73,000 adults over 70. Essentially, better air is saving more people than coronavirus is killing. Yeah, I read that. That's amazing. And the, it's also impossible to, you know, it's impossible to really extrapolate from there what the global effects are. And I think in a certain way, as you were getting at, the, the bigger impact is whether we look at our, look at our ingenuity, our creativity as individuals and as governments and see the opportunity to really create lasting change and seize it mm -hmm. or do we scurry back to business as usual and that's up to us and that's really I mean it's up to us as citizens to press our local and federal governments to use to see this as opportunity and do we at the end of this what really I think the the thing that economists and policymakers that I listen to say over and over is we will be on the other side of this, whether it's three months or a year, whatever it is, there will be a vaccine, there will be herd immunity, this, this particular crisis will end. And then do we scurry to shore up our economies by investing in wildly polluting industries? Or do we, do we see that it is a good to do more telecommuting, which keeps more cars off the road and keeps us closer to our families. Yeah. Is this the time? Is this the moment when we invest in alternative energies? Is this, you know, is this the time? And you can only hope that because everyone everywhere, because this is the whole world, it's not one country is never obviously solving climate change. It, 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 we are in this thing together and it's incredible. I, I never, none of us could have, imagined that a virus could have brought us 
together this way. Yeah. And, um, you know, the opportunity is there. The question is, will we take it? Yeah. I mean, certainly a lot of these uh, behaviors and lack of implementing the behaviors just in retrospect seem like inertia. I mean, especially around remote work where now, you know, you have essentially every significant company in the United States and around the world with employees working at home, not driving, you know, an hour each direction, not sitting in over air conditioned or overheated office parks, et cetera. And, and, you know, from a quality of life perspective, from a resources perspective, you know, all of that points, I think, into a new story, which is more sustainable and, you know, honestly, just more nourishing. Um, I, you know, but it's easy, I think, to sit here right now in this bubble prior to potential global economic collapse and, and you know, daydream about the new world story when obviously this is going to put a microscope on income inequality um, like nothing ever has. Um, 100%. You know, uh, and, you know, is part of this new story a re-examination of, of globalism, but also essentially, like, what at the core of it, like, makes us truly content and happy? You know, we've been living kind of in this romantic era notion that has kind of sanctified all of the virtues of individualism and has promoted the notion of kind of exploration and quote unquote wanderlust where, you know, we're traveling the world and in, in search of kind of knowing ourselves on some level, but also, you know, discovery. Um, and are we really headed towards a more provincial, local, decentralized form of governing and organization where people are actually truly civically engaged uh, in the issues that most impact them uh, versus, you know, every four years, you know, a small percentage or a certain percentage of the citizenry casting a vote in on issues that seem, I don't know, even just kind of incomprehensible or not particularly tangible. Um, so, you know, like, I wonder about our ability to sort of reimagine that. I mean, you know, there's spiritual dimensions of it. I mean, you know, as you talked earlier about, you know, this kind of need for endless growth and productivity, um, it's all sort of all kind of based in this notion of like, well, if only and only if we can hit this number or purchase this thing or acquire this service or product, then we'll, then we will be happy in the present. And the, yes, and measure and that our measure for success, both individual and as a country is in this fantasy of endless growth, which anyone who looks at it really from a, from a, environmental perspective, but also just from a resources perspective, even if you weren't even going to worry about the environmental impact, is it's a dream. I mean, the, you know, the continuing upward tick of the stock market is a fantasy. And we're all, we're all 
have been involved in that fantasy together. We've been buoying it up, but it is, it is, there is not infinite growth. That's just impossible. And so the, the real restructuring of that and the in, envisioning of a different way of relating to human beings, not as human bits of capital, as they are sometimes called, but as actual individuals who should live more locally and find their purpose from the, the meaning of their day-to-day lives and their local communities is, is, a, is a seismic shift yeah. in the way we will live. Yeah, it will require new indices for how we actually measure progress and success and I guess by extension, human happiness and contentment. There's um, the 80th verse of the Tao has always played a, or for the last number of years played a role in my life. I go back to it quite a bit in terms of how we think about self-organization distributed leadership, government, I'll just read it for a minute. If a country is governed wisely, its inhabitants will be content. They enjoy the labor of their hands and don't waste time inventing labor-saving machines. Since they dearly love their homes, they aren't interested in travel. There may be a few wagons and boats, but these don't go anywhere. There may be an arsenal of weapons, but nobody ever uses them. People enjoy their food, take pleasure in being with their families, spend weekends working in their gardens, delight in the doings of the neighborhood. And even though the next country is so close that people can hear its roosters crowing and its dogs barking, they are content to die of old age without ever having gone to see it. You know, I remember when you read that to me like two years ago, and um, I immediately thought of my parents who Mm. have lived this Tao for the last uh, almost 80, 80 years or 20 years since they communized in Northern California, but it really is the way they live. And though I worry about them, they're in the vulnerable population. I've been thinking about them so much and how their life in this moment is not impacted. It's barely impacted. When I called them, <laughs> nothing in their day-to-day life had changed. They grow most of their own food. They barely go into town, and they're incredibly happy in their funny little funky bubble. As my, my brother and I have been freaking out because they really don't wash their hands. And <laughs> I, I called my mom, and I said, Mom, you got to take this seriously. This is really, this, I know you don't, you don't have a TV. You're not, all you do is listen to Amy Goodman for your news, but listen to her. She's telling you how serious this is. Now take this for real. She, she, I left this on a voicemail and she called me back. She said, oh yes, I know we're not really big on the hand washing, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We, I, I put out a sign so we'll remember. And then she texted me because amazingly she has figured out how to text up. They wrote on a piece of cardboard kind of scrawled wash hands and put it right inside their their doorway and she assured me she had a tincture of a very strong tincture of reishi mushrooms and they were going to be just fine Hmm. (laughs) maybe i'm not sure if that's our future um but it may be somewhere along that spectrum a sprinkling of that yeah I think just in the end, the core message right now, again, is social distancing and isolation. And I just want to, in summary, 
um, underscore that point. Because in the absence of a vaccine, the only way to achieve kind of herd immunity is by slowing the rate of reproduction. And eventually the virus just gets frustrated because it can't find a new body to infect. So really take that seriously. Um, you know, consolidate your trips and your errands out of the house. Obviously, remote work. Um, cancel any non-essential travel. Uh, all of your meetings um, should be by video or call. Um, and then obviously engaging in all of the personal habits that have been uh, well trumpeted at this juncture of not touching your face and continual hand washing. And uh, this will be kind of the basic test of our ability to work together um, and get through this and hope and, and, and hopefully imagine a new human story on the other side. If you have any thoughts, feel free to email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. And for now, stay centered, follow the science, don't succumb to fear, and spread knowledge, not the virus. <laughs>